Good morning. My name is Maury. I'm one of the elders here. I'm not a pastor. I'm a chaplain at Fort Hood. The elders uh, last month made a decision to send Pastor Dave and Pastor Steve over to Europe and other parts to visit some of our ministry partners. Uh, don't you love Pastor Dave? Isn't he awesome? And don't you love Pastor Stephen too? So they're not here to hear that. Well, maybe they are. They said something about dropping in live in one of the services. Maybe this is the one. Uh, but w- would you pray with me for them? Let's take a moment and pray for them. Dear Lord, we list, lift up Dave and Stephen to you. We pray that you will bless their mission to strengthen our ministry partners in parts far away from Texas where they're lonely and sometimes discouraged and need support, fellowship, and friendship. We pray that Dave and Stephen can bring just the right words of encouragement to them and their very presence to show that we are ministry partners in every sense of the word. Watch over Dave and Steve. Keep them safe. Give them good health and good rest, good energy, and return them home safely to their families, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We are in a series of messages on meeting Jesus from Luke and Acts. Today, I'm going to preach from Luke 18. If you want to turn in your Bible to Luke 18, if you want to go on your iPhone, that's okay too. Your smart media and pull up Luke chapter 18. And in this passage today, 18 to 30, Luke chapter 18, verses 18 to 30, we're going to look at Jesus' encounter with the rich young ruler. Let's again pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So we're looking at this story in Luke 18, verses 18 to 30. Read along with me. A rich young ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And the young man said, All these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. But when the young man heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, What is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, See, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
So we're looking at a story about a rich young ruler. Let's break that down, rich young ruler. Rich, what does it mean to be rich? Financially, what does it take? Are you rich? Anybody here rich this morning? Well, are you? Do you feel rich? Do you think rich? Do you live rich? Americans have a way of thinking about this, which is different than the rest of the world. My wife and I were blessed uh, two years ago to travel to India to visit our son and his wife, where they teach over there. And we found out that the average male worker in India, male worker, females earn less, the average male worker in India earns $97 a year. Think about that for just a moment. $97 a year. Some of you make that in a day. $97 a year. Other parts of the world make even less than that. So in India, when Westerners come to the Taj Mahal in Agra, or when we would go to see uh, Gandhi's tomb in Delhi, or if you go to the south in Calcutta or Mumbai, you're considered rich and wealthy because you're from the West. You, you speak like you're from the West. You dress like you're from the West. You look like you're from the West. So you're considered a rich person. So what is riches? Well, in this story, rich young ruler, this rich young man probably inherited his wealth. You see, they didn't have entrepreneurial enterprises like we do today. So he probably inherited it from his father and him from his grandfather. And he probably owned some land, some cattle, some investments, had lots of workers. And the fact that he was young shows that it was probably inherited. The term ruler means that he governed over a, um, a, a section of farms or agricultural investment. So... He is wealthy beyond your average ordinary Jew in that time. I'm not a rich man in that sense, but I am rich in the sense of how God has blessed me. And I'll just say a a word about that before I get back into talking about wealth. I'm blessed by my Savior Jesus Christ. I have a wife of 31 years who's been a blessing to me for 31 years. I have a son, Peter. He's teaching over in India. And I remember the day he was born. And then I remember when my daughter Anne-Marie was born. And when my daughter Anne-Marie was born, my best friend said to me, now you have a king's delight, a boy and a girl, a king's delight. And I thought I was rich. And I didn't have any money in the bank account. We were having babies, and I was in graduate school. And money was going out, but there wasn't a lot of money coming in. You know what I'm saying? And then we were blessed on a Palm Sunday weekend with our third child, Holly. And my friend said to me, you're triply blessed with your children. And today is Holly's 23rd birthday. Can you believe that, how time flies? So I'm blessed to have a wonderful family and I'm blessed with good friends, and I'm blessed with a good job. So in that sense, I'm very rich in how God has poured out his blessings upon me. Uh, This young man, though, 
is asking an interesting set of questions. The first one is, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, what's interesting about this question is he's a young kid. How many young kids think about eternal life? It's not really the burning question on their minds, is it? They're thinking about social media and their social status and their standing, and maybe they're thinking about doing their homework and making good grades. But a lot of young folks are not really thinking about eternal life. So it's an interesting question. And really what's going on here is good teacher, it's, it's not commonly used throughout the New Testament. What he's really doing as a wealthy person is using the rhetoric of flattery to impress Jesus. And, of course, Jesus doesn't go down that road and say, yes, thank you for calling me good. I'm such a good and righteous person. Thank you for acknowledging that. No, in fact, he says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. So he's not saying, I'm not good, but he's saying, make sure your focus is in the right place, that God is the source of all goodness and God is good. But this question of what must I do to inherit eternal life, Jesus responds by saying, you know the commandments. And then Jesus lists some of those commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. So Jesus is saying, you know the commandments. Right? So I would ask you this morning, do you know the commandments? How many commandments are there? How many are there? There's ten, right? Ten commandments. Now, I grew up in the day when we had those in the wall of the school and the church, the Sunday school classroom, and we heard them at home too. So we were getting the ten commandments from three different places, right? And they were very much a part of our lives. We didn't always obey them, but we knew that there would be a consequence for murder. We were taught that at a young age. So we didn't think about killing each other. I mean, we would say that, but we really didn't mean kill each other. We really meant just, you know, pound each other a little bit and struggle along the way of life, right? But we didn't think about killing each other, and we didn't hate each other so much that we would want to do that. We had the commandments of God. Unfortunately, today in one of those institutions, those commandments have been removed. And it makes me wonder about what moral guidance is being given young children, which elevates the role of the family and the church in providing moral guidance for children today. So, yes, we should be providing moral guidance. If you ever watch uh, some of the late-night shows, they'll they'll do little uh, on-the-street interviews to ask people facts about who's the vice president, who's the secretary of state, They'll show them a picture, do you know who this is? And, they, and they'll do it on college campuses. And people who are supposed to be smart and know some things get all the answers wrong. Uh, but sometimes we don't know the things that we should know. And where are we going to learn those things? We need to learn moral guidance in our homes and in our churches because unfortunately we're not getting it in our schools today. Do you know the commandments? Do you know where they are? Can anybody tell me where the commandments are? Exodus, what chapter? Okay, good. 
Good. You kind of zeroing in on it there. Exodus 20. Let's turn over to Exodus 20 and let's review the Ten Commandments. Now, this question of do you know the commandments is more than just do you have them memorized? The question is, are you familiar with the commandments? Do you live the commandments? And it's curious that the first commandment is one that Jesus leaves out when he's talking to the rich young ruler, and he does it intentionally because that's what he's going to get at with this young man as the conversation moves forward. But look, Exodus chapter 20 says, God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol. Jump down to verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Verse 8. Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Verse 12, honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And you shall not covet your neighbor's house, your neighbor's wife, his male servant, his female servant, his ox, his donkey, anything that belongs to your neighbor, you shall not covet. And the young man replies, I, all these, Lord, I have kept from my youth. Since I was a wee lad, I was taught these commands, and I know these commands, and I've observed these commands. And Jesus says, have you? You still lack one thing. You still lack one thing. What? Wait a minute, Lord. I've just self-justified myself. I've kept all the commands. I'm a good and righteous Jew. I'm rich. I'm young. I'm asking about eternal life. I'm asking the million-dollar questions. What could possibly be wrong in my life? And Jesus discerns in the young man what is between his heart and God's heart, what is in the way. And he says, sell everything. Everything you have, everything you've inherited, everything you've built, everything that's been given to you, everything that belongs to you, give it to the poor and follow me. Now think about that for a moment. Is that a reasonable request? Sell your 401k, cash it out, and give all the money to the church. That doesn't sound very reasonable, does it? Some would say that's not very good guidance. Sell your 529s, your children's future, their college savings. Give it to the poor. Give it to somebody else. Really? So is Jesus providing general guidance for all of us here, or is he addressing a specific problem in this young man's heart? It's the latter. He's not saying, all right, if you're going to be a Christian, you've got to sell everything, impoverish yourself, give everything to the poor, and then you can follow me. He's saying, you still lack one thing. It's the one thing that's between your heart and God's heart. And for every person, it's something different. But for this young man, it was his wealth. It was his identity. It was his everything. 
It was his security from his position of wealth and power. He could be very confident in his standing. But Jesus said, I want you to give it all away. Now, you would think that if Jesus said that to somebody, that they would say, okay, Lord, whatever it takes, I'm in. But this young man said, I can't do it. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. Now, what's curious is Jesus doesn't say, wait a minute, you misunderstood me. I didn't mean to make you sad. I didn't mean to upset you. Come back and let's talk it over and I'll approach it from a different perspective and maybe we can come to reasonable terms. He let him walk away sad. He wanted the young man to really think about what was in his heart and what really mattered and specifically what was between him and God. How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God, Jesus said. He didn't say, wait a minute, no, 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 don't leave me. You misunderstood. He said how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Why is it so hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? And if we, as Americans, compare ourselves to the rest of the world, we are rich. Even if you're making minimum wage and getting basic health care and scrapping your way through life, we are rich compared to the rest of the world. Our problem is we compare ourselves to one another, which leads to covetousness, envy, jealousy, and some of the social problems we're seeing in our culture today with protests, which are rooted in envy, you have what I don't, you don't deserve what you have, I want some of what you have. Where's my $90,000 a year job? I'm going to protest. What does that come out of? I don't know that that's coming out of a heart which is following Jesus. How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. We're so consumed with wealth and prosperity in our culture that it gets in the way. Jesus said, it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. What does that mean? That's one of Jesus' famous statements. If you Google famous quotes from Jesus, this one would be one of the, the, those that come up. It's up there with the golden rule. It's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of the needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. So here's a picture uh, with, which shows a gate within a gate, within a gate. So you see the stone gate, and then you see the wood gate, and then down in the left corner is a little small door. So the gate would be closed every evening. This is to Jerusalem gate would be closed, and there would be a small gate. I guess there was a password or something. You'd knock on the door a certain way, and they'd let you in. But you could also get your camel in there if you took the rider off and you took its pack off, and the animal could bend down low enough. It could get through the eye of the needle. And so this gate is called the eye of the needle gate. The problem is this gate wasn't built until the 16th century. So was Jesus talking about this gate in Luke 18? 
Probably not. Probably not. Built by the Orthodox Church in the 16th century, the eye of the needle gate illustrates Luke 18, but it wasn't there when Jesus taught this. Let's look at another famous picture. Anybody recognize that city or site? It's Petra, made popular by the Indiana Jones movie, The Last Crusade, where good and evil consummate their battle at the end of the movie, the city of Petra. Notice the passageway between the rocks leading to the city of Petra. It's shaped like a needle. See the eye at the top? Now, it's actually wider than what it looks like. It's a dried riverbed that passes between the rock into the great rock city of Petra. So is this the eye of the needle that Jesus was talking about? Well, probably not. I don't know if Jesus ever went to Petra. And it's certainly big enough that a camel can pass through it. So could it be that this is what Jesus was talking about? What is that? Youngsters, do you know what that is? Ask Grandma what that is. We don't use a lot of those anymore, right? If we get a tear in our shirt or our jacket, we recycle it and go buy a new one. Some folks will actually stitch it up and repair it. I'm not very good at that, but that is a needle, a real needle. And that's a real piece of thread. Do you think back in Jesus' day that they had needles? Yes, they did. And do you think that they had thread back in Jesus' day? Yes, they did. So isn't it most likely that this is what Jesus was talking about when he talked about a camel passing through the eye of the needle? But that's impossible, you say. Yes, it is. It is impossible. That's why the people say, well, then who can be saved? Who can be saved? Because that's impossible. The rich people, they're the ones who are doing the best And they must be the most blessed by God because they have everything that they need. And they look like they are good people. So how can the rest of us be saved if even they can't be saved? And Jesus says another famous statement. What is impossible with man is possible with God. Let's come back to the rich young ruler. What is the one thing between his heart and God's heart, his wealth, his riches, his empire that he's built. That's between him and God. It's keeping him from really knowing the Lord and really following Jesus. He goes away sad when Jesus says, sell everything, give it to the poor, follow me. Who can be saved? What is impossible with man? is possible with God. See, the thing is, the one thing that's between my heart and God's heart, the thing that gets in the way, I don't always see it. I don't always know what it is. I'm blind to it. And even if my wife would try to point it out to me, I still might resist seeing it. Sometimes it takes the work of the Holy Spirit to open our eyes to what's in the way. And do you know how the Holy Spirit works? Through circumstances and through people, but sometimes when we look into our own hearts and we ask the courageous question, God, what is in my heart? What is between my heart and your heart? 
You know, because it's really interesting, the things that will creep into your hearts, especially if you live life long enough. You know, when I was a kid, I was pretty carefree. I'd hear my parents talk about stress. I was like, what is stress? I don't even know what that is. I was a stress-free kid. Now, that doesn't mean I wasn't a little sinner because I had my share in that as well, and I needed God's salvation even as a young kid. But as we grow in life, responsibilities increase, pressures increase, bills increase, right? It all piles up on us. And things happen to our hearts as we grow older. Things come in there that we didn't think were going to come in there. Or things come back that we thought that we had already conquered. Things like jealousy or envy. Things like lying or stealing. And then really big things like lust and adultery and murder. How could you hate someone so much? How could your heart be so filled with hate that you would murder someone. And yet it happens every day. In America, all across our land, people that know better, know the commandments, do those things. They allow those things to come between their heart and God's heart. We allow those things to come between our hearts and God's hearts. How then can we be saved? Who's going to save us from that? We can't save ourselves because we're blind to it. And even when we try our best to be good and righteous people, if we, if we do it on our own, it still comes in. Things come between our heart and God's heart. But what is impossible with man is possible with God. We are in the season of Easter that goes up to Pentecost. And after Pentecost, we enter what's called ordinary time. Ordinary time is we live as if the way God intended us to live. In fellowship with the risen Lord, empowered by the Holy Spirit to be Christ's witnesses in the world. Right now we're in that season of resurrection and renewal, of new life and empowerment. This is a great time for us to ask the courageous question, what is between my heart and God's heart? What is in the way? What is the one thing that keeps me from really following Jesus? And when I look at it, when I finally see what it is, how can I be delivered from lust? How can I be saved from lying? How can I be rescued from envy, jealousy, hatred, all the things that wreck our lives when they come into full bloom? How can we be saved? We are in resurrection time, the time when we remember Jesus hung and died and bled on a cross for our sins. You see, the problem is sin. Not just a sin, but the state of being called sin. We are sinners saved by grace. But are we really being saved by God's grace? Are we allowing God's grace to come into our hearts and transform our hearts so that that one thing is not... And you know what? If it's not one thing, it'll be another. Because as you go from year to year, day to day, phase in life to phase in life, stages of growth, you're going to have different things competing for God's affection in your heart, for God's glory 
And Jesus hit the nail on the head when he did not reference the command but addressed the problem. You shall have no other gods before me. You see, for the young man, wealth was his God. We shall have no other gods before our God. Do you sometimes allow something or someone else to become your God? As a chaplain, I talk to a lot of soldiers. Some of them are going through qualitative management boards. Some people get to progress forward. Some people have to leave the army. And they find themselves in a really desperate place, especially all those 11 bravos who say, my skills don't translate into the working world as a civilian. What am I supposed to do, chaplain? So it's a time of trouble and high anxiety and stress and worry. And unfortunately, I see people struggle in their career. Will I make my next promotion? Will I get selected? Will I be passed over again? And you really see that struggle, and everybody cares about that. But when it becomes an idol, it gets in the way of your relationship with God. So you have to be open that God loves you, and God has a plan for your life, and it may be different than what you think. Maybe you're on that plan, but it doesn't mean that at some point God can redirect your steps. As the Proverbs say, in his heart a man plans his way, but the Lord determines his footsteps. So when we let those things get in the way, we lose fellowship with God, our focus is in the wrong place, we live with guilt. We don't live with freedom. But if we allow God to identify that barrier in our relationship with him so that it can be removed, then we are truly free to follow Jesus. What is impossible with man is possible with God. Now, it's curious as I wrap it up here, the response of the disciples First it was, well, who can be saved? And then Peter more specifically says, Lord, a lot of us have already left our homes, and we're following you. What about us? And Jesus says, I tell you the truth. Whenever you give these things up to follow me, you will be rewarded. But don't do it for the reward. Just be aware that God will bless you. God will care for you. God will take care of you. And the greatest reward is the gift of eternal life. This life is only so many years, and it does come to an end. And you have to ask yourself, at the end of this life, am I really just a bag of chemical bones? I just rot into the earth and that's it? Or does my life go on? And if it goes on, do I believe in eternal life? What must I do to inherit eternal life? And what's the one thing between me and God that prevents me from experiencing life in this life and eternal life in the life to come. What is impossible with man is possible with God. So I leave you with good news. As we look into our hearts and find those things, sometimes we know right away, what, I know what my problem is. Some guys are real good. Some gals are real good at identifying what their problems are. Others, a little more reluctant, to identify that one thing that 
breaks their fellowship with God and keeps coming in the way, again, I encourage you, take a courageous look inside your heart. See what's there. God loves you, and he can change your heart. He can deliver you from what you think you'll never be saved from or whatever you think is the greatest thing. He can save you, transform your heart, and bring you into greater fellowship with him. Let's pray together. We thank you, Lord, for changing our lives. We thank you for Easter, this season that we're in. We pray that we will not miss the opportunity for you to change our hearts. Every day that we'll look in our hearts and say, Lord, what is it that's in the way? We hear the command that you shall have no other gods before me. So we don't want there to be anything in the way. Help us to find it, to identify it, to repent from it, to allow your grace to change our hearts so that we live in unbroken fellowship with you, so that nothing stands in the way of you and the promise of eternal life. And I make this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.